Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Have you ever had a falling out with somebody? Everybody's shrugging their shoulders like nobody's ever had that experience, right? You ever had a falling out with somebody in your family? That's almost like asking, do you have a family? Have you ever had a falling out with somebody in your family and it lasted for a long time, like five years? 10 years, 10 going for 15, 20, oh, capped it at 15, huh? Well, what do you do when you have a falling out with somebody that is close and then you don't see or speak to each other for the next 20 years? Uh, early in my Christian experience, I knew of a case like that. Matter of fact, it didn't dawn on me until just this very minute. I remembered there were two brothers and they went into a business venture together and somehow had a falling out. And when I came along uh, many years later, uh, they hadn't spoken to each other in years and years and years. I think they eventually got around to it, but it took them a long time. Well, I want to tell you a story about just that very thing. Two men who were brothers who had a falling out and as a result did not speak to each other for 20 years. So the question is, how do you get people like that reconciled? What has to happen? to be reconciled with somebody that you've had a falling out with. Well, there are some helpful hints toward that end in Genesis chapter 33. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 33? <clears throat> now, if you've been with me as we've been going through the book of Genesis, you just know what's about to come. But for some of you who haven't, let me give you a little background. In the book of Genesis, there were two brothers. As a matter of fact, they were twin brothers. The oldest was supposed to get the birthright, and the younger one deceived their father so that he got the birthright and not the older. When the older one found out about that, he was furious. So the mother suggested to the younger, it's time for you to leave town. So the younger brother, a man named Jacob, did just that. He was single when he left. He left the Holy Land, as we would call it today, Palestine, the land of Canaan back in those days. And he went back to the land of his forefathers. And there he not only got married once, he got married twice. I mean... He had two wives at the same time, which was permissible in that day. And then, it's not even more interesting, uh, because of wanting to bear children, he ends up marrying 
their maids. So he has four wives. And after 20 years, he decides to go back home. Now, it was the will of God for him to go back because God had promised his grandfather, Abraham, his father, Isaac, and him that he would give them the land of Palestine. And so the Lord appeared to him, told him to go home. But there's a huge problem. Remember that brother? His name was Esau. And he was not a happy fella. Matter of fact, he had threatened to kill Jacob. So Jacob goes back in fear and trembling. The meeting takes place in Genesis chapter 33. The object now is to get these two brothers reconciled with each other. How do you get that done? What has to happen? Well, I'm going to tell you the story. And then I'm going to spell out some things that need to happen in very specific detail. But let's begin with verse 1. It tells us, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him 400 men. Pause for a second. We were told this in the previous chapter. Uh, matter of fact, Jacob sent some presents ahead to sort of soften him up, so to speak. And the servants who came back from delivering those presents said, he's coming to see you with 400 armed men. So Jacob looks up and he sees Esau coming with 400 men. Not a good start to reconciliation, would you say? So back in verse 1, we are told, So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. Now, a minute ago, I mentioned that he had two wives. I didn't tell you their names. There were Leah and Rachel. And that he had married one each of their maids. So he had four wives. What this verse is telling us is that he took his four wives and he divided them. He was afraid that Esau was going to come in, swords drawn, and kill the whole bunch. So he was protecting them. Look at verse 2. And he put the maidservants and their children in front. That was nice. Leah and her children behind them, and Rachel and Joseph last. Now, what he's doing is this. If Esau's coming to kill us all, he's going to have to kill the maids first. <laughs> then, remember, he fell in love with Rachel, and he got deceived into marrying Leah. Remember that? So he, matter of fact, the text says he loved Rachel more than Leah. So now he says, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put Rachel last, and we're going to put Leah after the maids. So if Esau's coming to kill us, he's going to kill the maids and their children first. He's then going to kill Leah and her children, and then he'll get to Rachel, and then finally he'll get to Joseph. Now that's a significant little observation for what happens later in the book when the brothers get jealous of Joseph. But that's getting way ahead of the story, but you get at this early date that he's sort of the favorite is he not? That's what's going on. 
So, verse 3 says, And he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now get the picture. He's lined up the families, and he's out in front of them, and he starts approaching his brother, and he bows down. Uh, he goes a little further, and he bows down again. Goes a little further, and he bows down again. Now that is a, an act of respect in that day, and you just do it once, but he did it seven times. He's uh, <clears throat> trying to make a point. I'm coming in peace, you know, don't draw your sword, and certainly don't tell those 400 men to come after us. So, how is Esau going to respond to this? Is he going to say, charge, mow them all down? The next verse says, but Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and wept. Wow. Now, here's the guy that got cheated out of a lot of money and hadn't seen his brother in 20 years. The significant part of verse 4 is that he ran to meet him indicating he didn't walk, he ran. He was eager to meet his brother. And when he got to him, he hugged him, and he kissed him, and they wept together. So, obviously, Esau forgave Jacob. Now, there can be no better answer to reconciliation then somebody has to initiate the forgiveness process. So it doesn't, the text doesn't say he forgave him, but obviously what he did indicates in this verse, and for that matter, the rest of the chapter, that that is exactly what he did. Now, let me make a suggestion. How would he know to do that? How would he know to forgive him? Well, you say that might be natural. It could be. But I'd like to make a suggestion. Students of the scripture who come to this passage often suggest that somewhere along the line, Esau came to know the Lord. In other words, Esau had been forgiven, and so it was very natural for him to forgive. Now, I think that makes sense because the book of Genesis tells us how to be reconciled to God. So Esau was reconciled to God, and that just automatically means you should be reconciled with other people in your life. He had been forgiven by God, which automatically means you should forgive other people. Now, how do you get all that done? How does somebody get reconciled to God, and how does somebody get forgiven by God? And I said the book of Genesis tells us that. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Talking about Abraham, it says that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The New Testament quotes that verse several times in order to teach that we are reconciled to God and forgiven by God by faith. Now, what does that mean? Faith in what? What do you have to believe? 
Well, according to the New Testament, you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, to use an Old Testament term, that he's the Son of God, to use the New Testament term, and that he died to pay for our sin, and that he arose from the dead. Now, I haven't told you anything you don't already know. It's called Good Friday and Easter, right? What's Good Friday about? Jesus died. What's Easter about? Jesus arose. Everybody in America knows that. What they don't sometimes understand is that everything it takes for us to be forgiven and reconciled to God was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross and arose from the dead. And that's because the Bible says the penalty of sin is death, separation from God. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he died for our sins. That's a direct quotation from the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that it would be like breaking the law, uh, having to pay a hefty fine, like, I don't know, throw out a figure. Fines aren't cheap these days. $500? And you go to court, and a friend says, I'll pay the fine. Now, if you could get a friend to do that, uh, how much would you owe the court? Zero. All right. That's what this is about. I've sinned against God. The penalty is death. And Jesus paid the $500. He died. So, here's your choice. You can say, I don't like that idea. I'll pay it myself. You got $500? No, but I'll figure it out. Or, thank you. And those are the options. You can say to God, thank you that your son died and paid for my sin. And you can trust him or you can say, I don't like God's plan. I'm going to work my way there. Well, the only problem with that is in this case, you can't do that because the Bible says it's not of works lest any man should boast. You can't do enough works to make up for all the sins you've committed. So I'm simply saying the Bible teaches very clearly salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. That you trust him for the forgiveness of sins. In this case, I think Esau had done that. He had been reconciled to God. He had been forgiven. And when he met his brother, it was then easy for him to forgive his brother. So, that's not all. There's more to this story. Pick it up at verse 5. And he, that is Esau, lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? Now, he hadn't seen his brother Jacob in 20 years. He didn't know who all these wives were. He didn't know who all these children were. But he sees all these people and he says to his brother, Who, who are these people? And Jacob says to him, verse 5, um, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Now, notice this very carefully. What does he call himself? Servant. servant. Whose servant? Your servant. So Jacob is very humbly saying to his brother Esau, The Lord has graciously given me these wives and children to me 
but he calls himself your servant. Mark that. We'll come back to it later. And Leah came near with her children. Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 6. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Verse 7, and Leah came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. So, they uh, get introduced, and they all show due respect to Esau by bowing down. All right, so his first question, are who are all these people? He has another question, verse 8. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, they are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, what this verse is referring to, it might not be immediately obvious. Remember I told you he sent a whole bunch of presents ahead? So what Esau is asking is, what's all this about? And Jacob says, uh, well, I was hoping to find favor in your sight. In the vernacular, I was hoping to butter you up. Uh, but that's my translation. But what I want you to notice is, what did he call Esau? My Lord. Now, way back when, God predicted that the older would serve the younger. Remember? Jacob got the birthright. He's supposed to be the one dominating this relationship. But he comes to Esau and he says, My Lord. Now he's called himself your servant and he's called Esau my Lord. Tuck that away. We're coming back to it. But we are told, verse 9, And Esau said, I have enough. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. I, I have all I need materially. You sent me all these gifts, which amounted to cattle and that herds and all those kind of things. And he said, I don't need them. I have enough. So, verse 10, Jacob says, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then receive my presence from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you have... You were pleased with me. He's saying, no, please take these back. He says in verse 11, please take my blessing, that is my gifts, that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. So he urged him and Esau took it. He took all the presents, which he should have done. Now, uh, very simply, there's a meeting. That's what all this is about. And they embrace each other, and uh, he explains two things. He explains all these wives he's got and all these children he's got, and he explains all these gifts he's given to Esau. So far, so good, right? So far, so good. One observation before we go any further. He said several times, God graciously gave me what I have. So he's really learned some things. Uh, you know, this is the conniving, deceitful character called Jacob. But now at this point in his life, he's learned that the Lord has the one that's blessed him, and he's acknowledging the Lord. 
Now, before I go on, one other observation. If there is to be reconciliation, this much you need to put down and note it well, namely that somebody has to make the first move, right? And in this case, it was Jacob. So if there's going to be reconciliation, somebody's got to move and they need to make the right move, which I will describe more in detail later. In the meantime, let's finish the story. They have been reconciled, so to speak. The verses I've read so far are about their meeting together. The rest of the chapter tells us about their separation. They're now going to eventually separate. And what happens is rather simple. Verse 12 says, Esau said, let us take our journey. Let who? Us. He's saying, we're together now. We're reconciled. So let us finish the journey together. Let us go and I will go before you. In other words, he's suggesting you've come back home, you've crossed the Jordan River, you're back in the land of Palestine, then we're not where you need to be yet, so let's join together and make the journey together. Let us, let us. That's the point. But Jacob said to him, verse 13, my Lord, notice again he's called Esau his Lord, know that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are uh, nursing, are with me, and if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go ahead before his servant, notice again, you're the Lord, I'm the servant, and I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock will go before me, and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. So what he's saying is, look, uh, the, we've, we've traveled a long way. Uh, and it's taken its toll on my flocks and herds. They are not able to take the journey at a normal pace. So you go ahead and we will take care of the animals because if we push them, like we would have to do to keep up with you, they would die. So we are told, verse 15, and Esau said, let now me leave with you some of the people who are with me. So he says, okay, I'll go on ahead, but let me leave some of the people that are with me. Who's with him? 400 armed men, right? So he is suggesting at this point, I just leave with you some that are with me that will guard you, that will protect you. That's what's going on. But he, that is Jacob said, middle of verse 15, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day to his way to Seir. In other words, Jacob said, I don't need your protection. Let me go. You just go ahead. We will meet sometime later. And Esau agreed to that. By the way, we have no record that that ever happened, which is rather interesting. So they separated peacefully. That is the point. Then the story continues. 
And the rest of the passage is simply telling us that Jacob uh, made a house. He made booths for his livestock. Uh, he called, called the place Sucker uh, in verse 17. In verse 18, uh, he eventually came to Shechem, uh, which is in the land of Canaan. And in verse 19, he bought the parcel of land. Uh, and uh, he erected there an altar, verse 20. In other words, uh, he made himself at home. He got back to his homeland and he settled down and made himself at home. And he called the place in verse 20, El Hohi Israel, which means Almighty God. He's acknowledging by naming that place that God has been faithful to him to bless him, to bring him back to his homeland, and to give him a safe dwelling there. That's it. That's the story. You get it? Two brothers that hadn't seen each other for 20 years met, uh, got reconciled, and uh, settled down together in the same land. Remarkable. When they parted, one of them was going to kill the other one. Now they're living in peace. So the, it's a simple story of Jacob and Esau were reconciled and lived peacefully together in the same land. That sums it all up. All right, I suggested that this is telling us about reconciliation. Anybody you need to be reconciled with? Need to do some reconcil reconciling? What can we learn from this passage? Well, let me make some suggestions. I have four. Number one, this passage does not say anything about them uh, discussing any details of the past. Isn't that interesting? I've been involved in cases where people were on outs with each other and they needed to be reconciled with each other. And in many of those cases, one or both of them wanted to go dig up all the details and hash them over to really convince the other person that they were right and the other person was wrong. So much so that I think there are places and times and cases where two people have fallen out and they can't get back together for that very reason. They can't agree on whose fault it was. They can't agree on all those dirty details of the past, and consequently, they still don't speak to each other. So let me make an observation, and I want to be very careful about saying this. I think that there are cases where that probably needs to be done. But I think this passage teaches us that it doesn't have to be done. Now, I think it depends on the individuals involved. This story is not saying this is what has to be done in every case. It is simply saying this is what happened in this case. But I think that's instructive to us, meaning simply that resolving the details is not always necessary. It is possible for two people who are at outs with each other to come to an agreement to say, we're not going to agree on all the details, but we can forgive each other 
and be friends. So observation number one, resolving all the details is not always necessary. One Bible teacher said, there are persons who believe that the all essential thing is discussions. However, there may be a perfect and a satisfactory harmony between men who had failed to agree. And the basis of such harmony may be the agreement to let bygones be bygones. End of quote. I think it depends on the individuals involved. I don't think there's any absolute rule laid out in the scripture. I just want to throw on the table one observation. That in this case, they did not go back and discuss the original disagreement but they were reconciled and lived harmoniously nonetheless. Second observation. I mentioned this earlier. To be reconciled, somebody's got to move first. And perhaps it should be, as in this case, the guilty one. Who cheated whom in this case? Jacob cheated Esau. So who made the first move? Jacob. Now, I'm not sure it has to be that way. Matter of fact, there are two passages in the New Testament that talk about reconciliation. And one of them is Matthew chapter 5 and one's in Matthew chapter 18. And it seems to me that in one of those passages it's saying, if you're the guilty person, you need to go. In the other passage it's saying, if the other person's guilty, you need to go. So I don't think there's any fast, hard and fast rule, except obviously somebody has got to make the first move. Observation number three. This is very important. Humility is needed. Jacob approached Esau with an extremely humble attitude calling him Lord and calling himself a servant, Esau's servant. I pointed out as we went through the passage how many times that happened. The fact that it says that over and over again is simply a reflection of the fact that Jacob was coming with an extremely humble attitude. Now let's talk about humility for a minute. Humility begins with acknowledging the Lord. Matter of fact, uh, throughout their first meeting, uh, Jacob acknowledged the Lord's blessing in his life. I pointed that out as we were going through the passage. And after the first meeting was over, Jacob praised the Lord. The passage ends with that. So that throughout the passage, he's acknowledging the Lord. Very instructive. If your view doesn't go past you, you tend to be proud. If all you look at yourself, you tend to be proud. Look at me. Look what I did. If you compare yourselves to other people, you end up proud. Matter of fact, I don't know how many people I've said, you know, of course, the Bible teaches we're sinners. And they say to me, I never killed anybody. They always pick the commandment they didn't break. 
Right. Do you ever lie? Oh, well, sure. Well, you see, the point is that if you compare yourself with yourself, you come off looking pretty good. I'm better than I used to be, right? And if you compare yourself with other people, well, you can always find somebody that's worse than you. And that's what we manage to do. But that's not the standard. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of other people's expectations. All have sinned and come short of my expectations. All have sinned and come short of, you know the verse, the glory of God. He's the standard. And when you see yourself as compared to him, then humility comes rather swiftly. If you really see yourself as compared to him, there's nothing to be proud about. There's a lot to be humble about. So a lot happened in Esau's life, and I think, obviously, we've traced it. A lot happened in Jacob's life, and he came back 20 years later, a humble man, acknowledging the Lord and having an entirely different perspective of his brother and an entirely different perspective of himself. The Lord is almighty. Esau is the master. I am the servant. I can't think of a better piece of advice to give someone who's looking to be reconciled with somebody else. Approach it with a humble attitude of recognizing who the Lord is first, that the other person is made in the image of God for whom Christ died, and that you are but a servant. I have a fourth suggestion. The first is that you don't necessarily have to rehearse all the details. The second is somebody's got to move first. The third is if you're going to move, do it with a little humility. But there's something that's easy to miss in this passage, and I want to end with it. Prayer is absolutely vital. The previous chapter talks about the fact that Jacob wrestled with the Lord all night in light of meeting Esau. So we've looked at these chapters separately, but if you looked at the story as a unit, you would walk away with the impression, you know, he really prayed about this thing before they got together. So prayer in reconciliation is really vital. Someone has said, as the narrative unfolds, it is not Jacob's plan that succeeded, but his prayer. When he met with Esau, he found that Esau had a change of heart, running to meet Jacob. Esau embraced him and kissed him and wept. All of Jacob's plans and schemes had come to naught. But the idea is the Lord answered prayer. The Lord can change even the most stubborn heart 
to make it inclined to peace. Another has said the narrative portrays the reconciliation of the brothers as an answer to Jacob's prayer. In spite of it all, God had prepared Jacob's way. So God is the God of reconciliation. The Bible says that very clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he has reconciled us to himself and he wants us to be reconciled to each other. So when seeking to be reconciled to someone that you've had a falling out with, first look to the Lord. Begin to pray that the Lord would work this out. Because in the final analysis, reconciliation is a work of grace to be sought by faith and acknowledged by praise when it is done. Only the restraining intervention of God kept Laban from retaliation against Jacob. Remember that? Laban was going after him to kill him. And God intervened, gave Laban a vision. So the Lord intervened to protect Jacob. Esau is apparently of no need of a similar divine check. His own good-natured act was a check on him. Since his rage and rehatred of chapter 27, Esau had undergone his own transformation. No longer is he controlled by vile passions, all of which is the work of the Lord. One professor who looked at this chapter summed it up very, very well when he said, and I quote, a major lesson of this chapter is that those who have received God's grace may trust in God's promise of protection when they seek a reconciliation with someone else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reconciliation and forgiveness that we have with you. And thank you for the possibility of being reconciled with those with whom we've had disagreements. And we pray that there might be peace and harmony as a result. Lord, teach us these valuable lessons to seek your face first, to go in humility, to trust you to work it all out. In Jesus' name I pray.